It's time to go under the hood with the Indy Fuel. Welcome to Under the Hood, the official podcast of the Indy Fuel. I am the broadcast voice of the Fuel, Andrew Smith. On this edition of Under the Hood, we're going to take another trip down memory lane, as we will do a lot this summer, as it's a significant anniversary year for Indianapolis hockey. We've been fortunate enough to have nine championship teams in Indy. Doug Christensen and his staff with the Indy Fuel looking forward to hopefully adding number 10 to that list in the near future. But 70 years ago, the Indianapolis Capitals swept their way to the Calder Cup title, the first team in AHL history to win all eight playoff games en route to the championship. They swept the heavily favored Cleveland Barons in four games in the final series, led by Hall of Famer Terry Sawchuck. Then in 2000, 20 years ago on last week's podcast, we looked back at that championship team, the Indianapolis Ice, in their first year in the Central Hockey League, winning the Miron Cup. Ten years earlier than that, in their second year in the International Hockey League, the Ice won the Turner Cup. It was their first year as a Blackhawks affiliate and their first year as well being broadcast on local radio and Ken Double described all the action. Ken will be our guest on this edition of the podcast, and we're going to go through a ton of different topics as Ken was a broadcaster for eight seasons for the Indianapolis Ice from 89 to 92, and then again from 1994 through the end of the IHL franchise in 1999. So that's going to be our topic du jour on this edition We'll get to Ken in just a moment, but first, a little bit of Indy Fuel news as we take a look at what's going on right here and now, and we know the schedule for 2020-2021 for the 36 home games at the Indiana Farmers Coliseum. One big change to the schedule this year, and that is that all home games except the Sunday games will begin at 7 p.m., Instead of the 7.30 face-offs for Friday and Saturday night games as we've had in recent years, all games will now face off at 7 p.m. Of course, the Sunday games will continue to drop the puck at 3 p.m. And we'll have the Education Day game as well in February against the Toledo Walleye. That'll be on February 10th, and that will be an afternoon game on that Wednesday. But other than that, all Monday through Saturday home games, 7 o'clock face-offs, so... Plan to be there a half hour earlier on Fridays. And then, of course, we had 6 o'clock face-offs this past season on Saturday night games. And so we'll streamline those, and they'll all be 7 o'clock games. The regular season begins on Friday, October 16th, as the Fort Wayne Comets come to visit. The Kalamazoo Wings will be here the following Friday night. It's a very heavy schedule, especially from the week before Thanksgiving on November 18th through the end of December as the Fuel will have eight home games in November and six of those will be from November 18th through the 28th and then in early December they'll play a number of games as well but they'll have seven home games in the month of December and then seven more in the month of January so you get a lot of opportunities to see the Fuel especially in November, December and January. The season will conclude on April 10th against the Cincinnati Cyclones in 2020-2021. It's a very division-heavy schedule this season as the Fort Wayne Comets will visit seven times. The Kalamazoo Wings will be in town six times, as will the Toledo Walleye. Cincinnati five times, Wheeling four times. As far as out-of-division opponents, we'll see Kansas City, Wichita, Utah, 
Tulsa and the Newfoundland Growlers will make their first ever appearance at the Indiana Farmers Coliseum coming up this season. So if you want to find out any more information about the 2020-21 home schedule or get your tickets, you can check out IndieFuelHockey.com and find out everything you need to know about the schedule and purchasing your season tickets and guaranteeing your spot at the Coliseum for the upcoming season. Of course, one other news item we covered on last week's podcast. The Fuel are going to be taking it outdoors in Toledo on New Year's Eve. They'll be playing at the Toledo Walleye Winterfest, an outdoor game at the Toledo Mud Hens Ballpark, 5th Third Field. And we're looking forward to being a part of that. The first ever outdoor game in Indy Fuel history. And you go back to 1939 in Indianapolis hockey history. Speaking of going back in time, it was 30 years ago this week that the Indianapolis Ice clinched the IHL's Turner Cup, doing so on a Monday night, May 14th, in front of a raucous crowd of 6,003 fans at what is now the Indiana Farmers Coliseum. Indianapolis teams have won three championships since, but that is the most recent one to be won on home ice. Mike Eagles and Sean Williams scored the goals. Jim Waite had a big night as the ice knocked off the Muskegon Lumberjacks 2-1 in that game and 4-0 in the series. And the ice ended up winning games 1 and 2 fairly handily 5-2. Then in game 3, it looked like they were going to go down to defeat in Muskegon. But with the ice trailing 4-3 in the final minute of regulation, they draw a penalty shot. Mike Stapleton scores to tie the game, and then Mike McNeil scores in overtime to give the ice a 5-4 to victory and set the stage for the sweep two nights later in Indianapolis. What a wonderful team that was. They blasted their way through the playoffs, defeating Peoria in five games, defeating Salt Lake in five games before sweeping Muskegon during the regular season. They won the division by a whopping 31 points with 114 points, 53, 21, and 8 on the year was their record. Salt Lake, the runner-up of the division, had 83 points. The only team in the league that had a better record than them was the Muskegon Lumberjacks, coached by former racer Blair McDonald. The top two teams meet in the finals, and the ice end up with the sweep, getting a chance to clinch on home ice. And that leads us to our guest on this edition of the Under the Hood podcast, Ken Double, who called all the action of that championship run for the Indianapolis Ice and was the voice of the Ice for eight of their final 10 seasons in the International Hockey League. Ken Double, it's great to have you join us today. And over the past few weeks, uh, as we've all been kind of staying uh, at home and trying to stay safe, what have these last couple of months looked like for you? <laughs> a lot of the same. Stay home, uh, reading a lot. Uh, there is a boatload of old paperwork that I should be diving into, and I think I'm about ready to start doing that this week. Um, and, uh, you know, the, the, the folks will know of my Chicago roots. And so I've been uh, steadfastly uh, looking at interesting Cubs history and Blackhawks history, wondering who might be the new president of the Blackhawks since they let McDonough go. And uh, and that kind of thing. I will tell you this. We had an anniversary with the um, the uh, Atlanta Knights team that won the Turner Cup championship uh, in uh, 
2000. I'm sorry. In um, yeah, it was 2000 and uh, no, it wasn't. 94. Was before that, 94. Yeah, because it was the 25th anniversary of that uh, championship team, and I, I, I was I was joking with them. So I the first year I ever did hockey, I won one as it was you know was the voice of a champion in uh, 89-90. The second year I was in Atlanta, we, we won a championship. The third year I was in Houston, we won a championship. I kept trying to sell NHL teams on hire me. The fourth year we're in. We're in. <laughs> I couldn't convince them to do that. But uh, the, so those are some of the things that go through your mind when you got way too much time on your hands. Uh, when we look back at that 1990 team, you mentioned that was the first year you did hockey. What was it that led you after having done the Pacers for a couple of seasons? Uh, you had done Purdue basketball on television. You'd done uh, sports on uh, Channel 6 as well as in Lafayette. What was it that led to the door opening for you to have the opportunity to broadcast hockey with the ice? A guy named Ray Compton uh, and some interesting circumstances. The uh, uh, My three-year contract with the Pacers ended, uh, and I actually stepped away from broadcasting for a year. The Purdue television gig started the same year the ice hockey gig started. And it was actually to my benefit to not do a full season of hockey because despite the fact growing up in Chicago, I knew the game, I knew the rules, I knew the terminology, uh, never having broadcast hockey. That was a real interesting first time experiment. Um, but Ray Compton was uh, a former sports writer. If folks don't know that name or know his history, uh, he used to write, these absolutely horrible columns about the mismanagement of the Indiana Pacers basketball team and Bob Salyers, uh, an attorney who represented the Simon organization while they were trying to uh, negotiate the sale to the Simons, uh, basically told Ray Compton, if you're so smart, you come over and show us how to do it. And Ray left the newspaper on a lark almost, and joined the Indiana Pacers. And he was responsible for a resurgence in interest, even when the team was still pretty lousy before, you know, the transition uh, began. And Ray was there for a long time. He left the Pacers. And I just, on a lark, as he started with the hockey team, called him and said, hey, listen, if you ever decide to do some radio, I know the game. Uh, I'd love to try it. And uh, he said, all right. And sure enough, that second year with the Blackhawks affiliation, he cut that deal for only about 14 games plus the playoffs. And that's how I started broadcasting hockey games and started working with the Indianapolis Ice. That's uh, just fantastic and led to a long career. As you mentioned, three championships that you had a chance to be a part of, including that first one. Because it was a second-year team and basically the roster completely turned over because it was the first year with the Blackhawks, how much did you really have to introduce a new set of players to the community while also getting used to broadcasting hockey, which is a completely different animal from doing play-by-play in any other sport, uh, yourself? It was um, – it was – on the one hand, an interesting challenge. On the other hand, you basically did, you know, everything you could at the time to describe and introduce. Understanding that you're doing 
a minor league sport in a city that's trying to become more big league. You're doing a game that some of the marketplace is familiar with, a small slice. And so you know you have a very small, extremely interested audience. And your job then is to sell the excitement of the game, sell the talent of these athletes, sell the energy that you get with good minor league hockey and good minor league hockey teams because these players are giving it everything they got at every step on the ice. You didn't get too many nights off, even in those situations where you're playing the fourth game in five nights or the third game in four nights. Uh, these these guys are all trying to get to the next level, and so uh, you're getting that kind of energy. So the sales job was easy. Having grown up on Jack Brickhouse in Chicago, using the microphone as a sales tool came easy to me. Selling the excitement came real easy to me. And there is, there is no game that creates as much energy and action throughout the 60 minutes of the clock as does the game of ice hockey. It's, uh, it's thrilling. You never know when the silly thing's going to go in the net. And so the, the, uh, the enthusiasm came naturally. What was it like working with Daryl Sutter, who's obviously gone on to have a lot of success winning two Stanley Cups with the Kings as a head coach? He was a young coach at the time. What was it like working with him? And uh, maybe tell a favorite Daryl Sutter story if you've got one. Well, it was it was really interesting. Uh, first of all, he treated me like an absolute pro. Uh, he was uh, he was a terrific coach. He was a very tough coach. I would expect that if you talked uh, to some of his players, they would say that, yeah, he was a taskmaster. He was a little bit old. No, he was not a little bit. He was very old school. And yet he made them better players. Uh, he was uh, he was fun to work with. You, you didn't see uh, you saw the wry smile. He wasn't he wasn't a guffaw laughs, laugh a minute guy. Um, not John Marks was a lot more open and you know fun and hilarious kind of guy no daryl was very serious about what he was doing while i don't have a specific story we could all talk about the Dwayne sutter incident when he walked off the ice <laughs> you know uh, with the with the, the white stick in his hand but uh with with Dwayne, the most interesting or, i mean with daryl the most interesting was how he treated the players and if players were upset if players were maybe moaning because their ice time was uh, limited or they were a scratch at a particular time, it was almost a case of he would grab the player from his locker room stall and march him into the bathroom and park him in front of the mirror and say, if you have a problem with your ice time, the problem is staring you back in the face. He made them incredibly accountable and determined that they would have to do the work to get themselves back in the lineup because they were either producing at both ends of the ice or whatever doing their job. Uh, uh, he didn't, uh, he, he didn't hold back on any of that. And, uh, it's one of the reasons they won championships. And so many of those players uh, went on to, 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 to play professionally uh, of, of all the players. Here's Butch Cassidy, who's now coaching in the national hockey league. And in his first job, he was the taskmaster, I think, he found out that this is a different kind of player and he had to be a little more careful at the NHL level. And I think he's learned he's in a great situation in Boston now. Uh, but I'll tell you that uh, there is some of his 
coaching philosophy that comes from his spending time with Daryl Sutter. He was a key part of that 1990 team as well. What was it like for you to get to know somebody like Bruce as a player who was at the time a prospect, his knee injury probably had him in the minors a lot longer than he had hoped, but then coming back as a young head coach and getting a chance to see him from that angle in your last year with the ice in 98-99. I'm going to tell you a funny story about Bruce as he ended up as the head coach in Grand Rapids while I was broadcasting in Houston. As a player, he was he was fabulous. He was a great guy, uh, fun to be around. Uh, fun to be around, you know, the, the, the off the ice and away from the rink. Uh, we had an opportunity to spend some time together, and I really enjoyed the company of Bruce Cassidy. One, two, respected him as a player. Had he not suffered those knee injuries, he would have had a spectacular career as an offensive defenseman in the National Hockey League. He could skate pre-surgery he was smart and he was really efficient with the puck and knew what to do quarterback a power play yeah uh, he'd been a heck of an nhl player and it's a real shame that the multiple knee surgeries did him in so uh we get to uh grand rapids <laughs> and i'd been around the league for a long time knew a lot of the coaches and uh it wasn't uh, a big deal for me to pop my head in to grab a quick interview with a coach. <laughs> First time I did that in Grand Rapids, Bruce Cassidy, the coach, was not Bruce Cassidy's Ken old buddy from Indy. Basically threw me out of the locker room. Don't you come in here <laughs> like that again. If you need an interview, you ask, and I'll be happy to come out. <laughs> it was all business, all serious. And, and what's so funny is uh yeah maybe i see a guy getting taped up in the you know weight room or in the in the in the you know the the trainer's room or whatever uh but uh i was not one to share trade secrets with the coaches one way or the other you know it wasn't my business uh but whatever it it was it was my and my first reaction was oh gets you know yikes okay all right we understand that and then later on we had an opportunity to chat and whatever and then when he got his first gig uh, in the NHL I had a chance to you know drop him a quick email and say congratulations and good luck and everything but boy that was a, it was a 180 degree turn uh from uh, from his days as a player to his days as a coach in the other locker room <laughs> Go back to that 1989-90 team, and you did a limited schedule of regular season games, and that was the case until you came back in 94 when uh, the rights moved to a different station and you started doing a full schedule. But was there a moment when you saw this team had a chance to be really, really special? Oh, it, you know, it didn't take long. Um, by by the mid-season, you could see they had all the ingredients they were tough and could be physical. They had speed. They had great strength at center. And uh, offensively, when you take a look, uh, you know, Mike Rusinski, he was a 28-goal scorer of the championship year. Jimmy Johansson was a 22-goal scorer of the championship year. Sean Williams was a 27-goal scorer of the championship year. Bob Basson was a 22-goal scorer. So Williams oftentimes ended up on the wing 
Basson sometimes on the wing, but you had four tremendous centermen, and that's before Mike Stapleton came later in the year. Uh, this this was a tremendous hockey team, uh, and they had again they had everything. They had speed, they had smarts, they had grit, they had intensity, they had good defense, and they had good defense with people who could move the puck, plus good defense who would play solid defense. And then Jimmy Waite was a tremendous goaltender, and uh, Ray LeBlanc turned out to be a really good backup goaltender uh, when necessary, and uh, they were. By midseason, you knew this was a team that could be reckoned with. Yeah, I had a chance to talk with Bruce Affleck uh, last year, who was part of two championship teams with the Checkers in the early 80s. Yeah. And one thing we talked about was how many players from those teams went on to become coaches, become executives, become people who gave back in uh, in hockey and moved up to higher levels in in hockey after their playing careers. You look at this team and it was very much the same thing. You've got people like Mike Eagles who were athletic directors at in uh, colleges in Canada. Uh you know Bob Basson's been very involved with the Dallas Stars, Jim Johansson uh, unfortunately he's no longer with yeah. us, but uh what he did with USA hockey and helping build USA hockey into a medal contender in just about every competition. And you know, Jimmy Playfair's a, an assistant coach, Jimmy Waits, an assistant coach of the Blackhawks, Darren Pang on television, uh, who was a backup goaltender for the latter part of that uh, season. What was it about the character of the guys in the room that allowed them to be so successful? And now you see that in their post-playing career as well. Well, again, I think part of that would come from somebody like Daryl Sutter, who who was a taskmaster, but certainly demonstrated that hard work pays off. And then they won. And then so many of them had the opportunity to maybe win again later. Um, and they also maybe understood very quickly Maybe I don't have an 8, 10, 12-year NHL career in my future. What do I want to do? And they were able to move themselves into coaching positions because maybe they had a little bit of vision uh, with an understanding. Uh, you know, the Johansson story is is uh, fantastic. Obviously, the Cassidy story, he climbs the ladder and gets himself an NHL coaching position. And yet, as you say, so many of these uh, players, uh, you know, Mike McNeil was a brilliant kid in those days the college kids were still somewhat new mm -hmm. that was still uh, uh, there were many of the old nhl old-time guys that uh, college players i don't know of course now of course you want college players uh usa born players were still a smaller percentage far smaller percentage that's all opened up and so some of these guys would have had an understanding and a background to say, I better be prepared to do something else. And if it's in hockey, uh, figure out, you know, how to do that. But a lot of that stems from success. Success breeds success. And, uh, boy, there's nothing like, there's nothing like winning. And, uh, it, uh, I, I think that's a couple of factors. I, I think the coach is a factor. I think some of these guys, uh, came through the college ranks, some of them had a little greater vision uh, in terms of just, uh, you know, I'm going to be an NHL player. And then if not, you know, go drive a truck someplace. 
Hey, let me tell you, let me tell you too about uh, um, uh, about Darren Pang. So he came came down. He was rehabbing, and then he got injured again. And so uh, he ends up in the booth. The first broadcast work he ever did was with me. And I'm not going to say and lay any claim that I trained and greased the skids for Darren Pang, but I can tell you the minute he opened his mouth, the first broadcast of any kind, I thought to myself immediately, oh, my God, can this guy do this? And it didn't take but two or three games, much less maybe two or three periods for us to get a timing and a comfort level, and he knew when to get in and get out. He No ahs and ums, no nothing. And all that enthusiasm came through. It was unbelievable. And so we had a chance over a couple of seasons to uh, to do some games together, and then to see him uh, get there was unbelievable. This happened later. Greenlay was the backup goaltender with the uh, Atlanta Knights when I was doing their games. And he was the third goalie in the playoff run. So he came up to the booth and became my color commentator. Same thing. The minute he opened his mouth, I thought, oh, my word. He wasn't as completely natural and gifted as a, at it as uh, Darren Pang was. But uh, sure enough, he's now been 14, 15 seasons with the uh, Minnesota Wild. And I keep thinking, oh, oh <laughs> What's missing here? One of my students from Butler University had a 30-year career in Colorado with the uh, Avalanche. Mike Haynes? Yeah. I taught a sportscasting class at Butler. He was one of my students. <laughs> 17 years, I couldn't get there, Andrew. What did I do wrong? <laughs> I don't know. Sometimes I think it's all about timing and being at the right place at the right oh, time. timing and, and who you know. Yeah. yeah. You know, you know what? I probably, if he, I hope he hears this. I probably should have left Compton off my resume. (laughs) (laughs) Do you remember anything about that championship call? A lot of broadcasters spend their whole careers uh, hoping to get the opportunity to call the final seconds of a championship. You got the opportunity to do it three times, but in your first season, do you remember anything about that call? What you said? uh, Did you plan it out? Or just kind of how it came out? No, I, I, I never, never. The only thing I ever planned was the opening of the broadcast. And it was something I was taught. And it was something I taught everybody else. Because particularly at the minor league level, when you're the broadcaster, in those days, you were lugging around a whole bunch of equipment to get on the air. And you were your own engineer. We still are. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, understood. And so you never know when, for whatever reason, something goes haywire and you are in the last countdown of the final 30 seconds before you're supposed to take the air. All heck is breaking loose. And now you finally get the connection and the engineer back at the station says you're on and your mind is complete scrambled eggs. And so I wrote out the first 30 seconds if not word for word, at least in detailed bullet point outline form, so that in case my brain was scrambled eggs, all I had to do was read. And I could read. <laughs> <laughs> and so uh, the only time I planned anything was the opening of the broadcast or the telecast. In terms of making the call, no, didn't rehearse anything, never planned for anything, because who knew, you know? But... uh 
generally speaking, uh, followed the rules and regulations of doing good radio, and that is be the eyes and ears of your listener. And, um, you know, it wasn't as if they scored the goal in the last uh, uh, second to win uh, the cup. But uh, uh, but count down the clock, uh, get to the double zeros, announce the championship, then bow out, let the audience, let the crowd noise, especially if you win at home, let that take over for a minute and then describe the scene. So can I sit here and tell you uh, exactly what I said? No, uh, but I can tell you that I would have been absolutely leaping out of my chair, <laughs> <laughs> screaming at the top of my lungs and uh, announcing that the, uh, the Indianapolis Ice were the IHL Turner Cup champions. Do you have a favorite memory or two or a story you can tell from that championship series of the playoff run? Oh, you know, honest to God, shame on me, but I don't. Uh, you know, if I had some of those old tapes and things to reference, uh, maybe I could. I don't, I can't sit here and say I have particular memories of a particular goal or a big brawl. Um, uh, and so uh, to, to uh, disappoint the listenership, uh, no. And some of that might be the fact that, you know, I'm closer to 70 than 60 these days. And maybe some of those brain cells have all gone away. <laughs> What about the the people? I know we referenced a few, but who are some of the players that stood out to you just as people away from the rink that you enjoyed getting to know? And what was it about them that you really enjoyed? You know, most of them. First and foremost, uh, and I can say this now, I'm far enough removed. Um, of all the athletes I've covered in my career, the hockey players have been the most even-keeled, level-headed, down-to-earth, fun-loving group to be around, bar none. The worst I've ever covered were the tennis players when we had the uh, clay courts championships in Indianapolis. The, the biggest bunch of country club spoiled brats ever. <laughs> now, I haven't done a lot of Major League Baseball. I haven't done a lot of NFL coverage uh, where I was around athletes or dealing with them on a regular basis. The race car drivers, for the most part, were great. Uh, I'll, I'll never forget Mario Andretti after another disappointment at the 500 uh, in that big crash up uh, on the opening lap. Uh, I had gone someplace else. I was uh, the pit reporter for the Channel 6 coverage, and I had gone someplace else. He had done his press conference. I went back to his garage and his brother asked him if he'd come out for Channel 6, and out he came and gave me a one-on-one -on -one interview when he didn't need to. That's a class act. Now, the hockey players, to a person, just spectacular. Brian Noonan was a lot of fun, and he had a great sense of humor, uh, a little bit of a wicked sense of humor, great fun to be around. Joe Hansen was a really stand-up guy. Sean Williams was fabulous, quiet, but just really friendly, just, uh, just a great guy. Cassidy, we've talked about the relationship. Bass and a real great guy, straight shooter. I ran into Bob uh, often uh, later on in his career. Warren Reichel was hilarious. Bundy was uh, a little bit out of control. Uh, Playfair was uh, a good guy, real serious. And you could see hockey in his future. I'm not surprised at all that he's had uh, a long uh, career, you know, coaching in the NHL. Uh, Danny Vincelet's name popped up here, and he was a great guy. Uh, Mike Peluso, terrific guy. Cam Russell, Mike Stapleton, just really, really good guys. 
and all, you know, in the same boat, they're all trying to make that next step to become an NHL player, kind of living out the dream. And uh, it was because they had success, because they won, because they had a little bit of a joint love-hate relationship with their coach. There's nothing that bonds players like winning and hating, respecting your coach. So they were all in that same boat, and it was one of the reasons that they won. Uh, Jimmy Waite was great. Ray LeBlanc was great. Um, these were just wonderful guys to be around, wonderful athletes. And even though I wasn't around a lot in the championship year, a little bit more the second and third year, uh, treated me with great respect, were great and cooperative and, and, and lots of fun. When you came back, you spent two years in Atlanta. What was it that brought you back to Indianapolis in 94 for those last five years with the ice? <laughs> in retrospect, maybe I should have stayed in Atlanta because the NHL team finally came down here. But uh, the ownership moved into a uh, roller hockey league that came into being in 1994-95, or the summer of 94. And uh, we were going to broadcast, I think it was a 26-game schedule. And we were, of the 26 games, going to do about seven or eight of them on television. And management expected me to work for no compensation. And their argument was, you're the highest paid announcer in the IHL. We were doing 35 telecasts, and I was producing 35 telecasts. The only team doing that much television. At which point I said, I should be paid <laughs> as the highest paid in the IHL. I'm doing more, more television than anybody else. At which point then I asked him, are you giving the ticket salespeople commission for selling tickets to the roller hockey? Well, of course they get commission when they sell tickets. I get paid when I talk into a microphone, they wouldn't budge. So I called Ray Compton again and he said, well, I think we're going to have a deal for the full season. Do you want to come up? And I said, sure. So we talked, and uh, it was a great gig. It was it was a great gig. I got paid decently as a minor league hockey announcer. We did a little television, but TV wasn't a, you know, a big thing because of the costs. I got paid from the radio station, which was owned by two college buddies of mine, to do the morning sports on the radio station. And then the hockey team and the radio station agreed to a sponsorship deal whereby I got a free car through the Rorman Honda dealership. I had known Bob Rorman and I used to do his commercials back in Lafayette, Indiana. So I had two paychecks and a car. It was the best gig in minor league sports I ever had and I had a lot of fun. And there I was in Indianapolis. And in the meantime, playing organ concerts on the side uh, and making some money then. So Ray brought me back. We had a great run of it. And then that was it for uh, Indianapolis and minor league hockey at the time. I spent one very forgettable year in Jacksonville, Florida, in the East Coast League. And I mean, that was brutal. But it uh, it kept me around long enough to uh, land the gig in Houston. In the meantime, I had four interviews for NHL jobs. I got down to one of two. Four times I was the runner-up. Once in Chicago, after the lockout, I thought I was in. And I didn't even get an interview for the job because the guy I thought I was in with, who had given me a handshake and said, I think we're good to go. And then the lockout comes. I spent another year with the ice. And uh, when it came time to bring the NHL back, he was out and I was out. 
but I, I uh, runner up once in Florida, runner up once with the Washington Capitals. I lost that job to Jiggs McDonald, the great legendary broadcaster. Mm-hmm. Um, it was it was interesting the near misses in getting to the uh, in not getting to the NHL. But anyway, I came back to Indian and really enjoyed being back. That's what got me uh, back on with the uh, turn two position at the Indy 500. That was fun. So it was, uh, you know, it was great to come back. Let's talk about uh, some of the coaches you worked with. You mentioned Dwayne Sutter. Then you worked with Bob Ferguson for three years before Bruce Cassidy came in. What were those guys like to work with? Fergie, well, uh, first of all, again, Dwayne was like his brother, except uh, uh, he he was. Um, well, I spent more time around Dwayne. Uh, again, those first years, I wasn't doing the full season, so I wasn't around every day uh, like I was later. But anyway, Dwayne was was terrific, and he was in a tough situation. They all were at that point in time when nobody had an assistant coach. Now the teams are much more in tune with working with these young kids at the minor league level and development. Uh, they weren't so much back then, and it was tough to be the head coach and, you know, working on all the travel and the hotels and all the hats you had to wear and then try and get a kid ready to play in the NHL. Dwayne was great. We had a lot of fun, spent a lot of time in the front of the bus, uh, either, you know, bemoaning the, 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 the what went on or what didn't go on or, or the winning or discussing whatever away from hockey, including the family, I ended up getting to know about four of the Sutters. Then um, Fergie was fabulous. Fergie was an excellent coach who had a real wonderful laid-back attitude. Uh, I don't know if he was burning up inside, but I do know that uh, in dealing with a guy one-on-one on a regular basis, he was really terrific. And again, uh, you know, had an awful lot of success at a lot of different levels. What are a couple of favorite memories you have from your days of working with the ice in either one of your two stints? In the second go round, since we were doing all of the games, I was around the office a lot more. And uh, Ray Compton had a spectacular manner of making the work fun. And it was a lot of work. Uh, they were short staffed compared to what the staffs were. Uh, he was this crazy idea guy. It was it was fun to either be in the corner making some calls or whatever, or sitting at the table when the ideas were being kicked around. Uh, one of the things that he and I talked about, half joking, half serious, and that was he wanted me to broadcast a game and play the organ for the game at the same time. And we kicked it around even to the point where we got serious enough about how would we get an organ into the booth. And then what it got down to were there were too many signals. You know, the PA announcer had to know uh, and, and, and the game ops operator had to know when you want organ music. I had to have a really good color guy who maybe was going to be a halfway decent play-by-play guy. The coordination was going to be insane. And then I finally told him, Ray, you can't afford me. <laughs> You'd have to pay me my concert level for all the headaches this is going to generate, and you can't afford me. And so it never, it never happened. But we talked about, we talked about it a lot. Come on, Kenny. He was the only person I would ever allow outside of one of my brothers to call me Kenny. <laughs> and uh, come on, Kenny, let's do it. Let's do it. Some of the memories are on ice. Most of the memories are off ice. Uh, I can remember a plane ride 
and uh, we must have been coming back from Salt Lake somewhere you know, long enough distance that we uh, had to fly. It must have been Salt Lake, and it was probably a red eye. But anyway, most of the guys are asleep. And here's the coach, Dwayne Sutter, who was a, you know, a tough guy. And he's going up and down the aircraft with a tube of toothpaste and somebody with his mouth open snoring, got a squirt <laughs> of the toothpaste, right? <laughs> and, uh, you know, those kinds of things. Golly, uh, do you know what a shoe check is? Have you experienced a shoe check? I have not. So. This is so silly, but the players love to do this. And everybody was fair game, including the owner of the Atlanta Knights or co-owner, Richard Hatford. So you're sitting at the team meal. I got it at the Thanksgiving meal on the, I guess it was Thanksgiving night. We didn't play Thanksgiving night. We had played the night before and the night after. So we're having a big, big dinner at a hotel on the road with the Atlanta, this is with the Atlanta Knights team, but it, it happened to everybody. And so what happens is a player gets either the big scoop of the chocolate sauce that would go on the ice cream or the dressing that would go on the salad or the gravy that would go on the mashed potatoes. And they sneak under the table that's draped with a tablecloth and they dump this stuff all over your shoes. (laughs) (laughs) And then they sneak out from under and everybody sits down after about 60 seconds when everything's normal. And, And what's really good is... In in my case, one of the players sat next to me, and he was a foreign-born player, and his English wasn't really good, so he had to really pay attention. Well, he was the decoy. So what type of dressing do you like on your salad? (laughs) What are they doing? They're dumping salad dressing all over my shoes. And so about uh, 60 seconds later, whoever is the culprit under the table, click, clink, 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 clink on the glasses and everybody shoot check. And there it is dumped all over and you are the victim of the shoot check. And that happened about once every five meals. I mean, somebody would be the recipient. So I should have gotten smart. I should have put my shoes at the door, worn my socking feet. It'd save me some cost on shoes. Um, those are, you know, the, the, the silly stories, championship celebrations. We won the cup with the Houston arrows in, uh, Hamilton. Uh, that was a fantastic celebration with the owner. Chuck Watson was celebrating the championship team, that's for sure. Uh, with uh, Indianapolis, uh, the Muskegon championship was was terrific. Uh, of the five years when we came back, obviously didn't have any championships to celebrate, but um, there were an awful lot of really good teams and some good players uh the Blackhawks had uh, drafted a little better and worked a little better with the Ferguson regime than they had. Uh, the Dwayne Sutter had a tough. He had a tough. They, they had not drafted well. They were not spending any money. The ice ownership was not spending any money. I mean, Peoria was spending a fortune to keep Michelle Mangeau under the Peoria banner. Uh, and uh, Indianapolis uh, at that time, between the Blackhawks and the ice ownership, they weren't spending any extra money at all. And so those teams uh, that, that Dwayne had uh, suffered somewhat for that. Uh, but later, Ferguson, he had some talent, he had some skill, and uh, had some opportunities and, uh, you know, just didn't quite get there. Division championship one year that in 1997 that ended up being foiled by a long double overtime game in Cleveland and old friend oh, Brad God. Lauer uh, scoring to tie the game up late, if I remember correctly. <laughs> but 
just go back as a broadcaster, those long double, triple overtime games in the playoffs. What do you do to keep yourself going during those games and really try to stay on top of the moment because you never know when it's going to end? I had a few of them, including the longest game in AHL history, the Calder Cup Championship uh, Game 2 in Hamilton, Ontario. And I'll, that's an amazing story I'll tell you about. But um, the, the, the first overtime, uh, I would get through fairly normally. If I got into a second overtime, I would back off on some of the specific play-by-play only because you're running out of gas. And, and so you've got to save something. And when you get into the occasion that it got to a third overtime, uh, then, you know, you're really backing off. In terms of the Hamilton story, here's the whole story. Um, I had, you know, who knew we were going to be playing hockey into the, you know, first eight and nine days of June. So I had booked an organ concert on a Sunday afternoon in June in Fort Wayne, Indiana at the Embassy Theater. So here we are in the championships, and we're going up to Hamilton from Houston. I left early. The games in Hamilton were going to be Thursday and Saturday. And I figured, okay, that'll work. Uh, I flew to Indy and rented a car. I drove to Fort Wayne, rehearsed, and rehearsed with a pianist I was performing with in the show. And then from Fort Wayne, I drove over to Hamilton, Ontario. And my plan was I'd do the Thursday game. I would do the Saturday game. Sunday was an off-travel day, so I would drive after the game Saturday back to Detroit, stay all night, get up early, drive down to Fort Wayne, quick rehearsal before the curtain goes up, and we play the concert um, on a, by the way, a spectacular pipe organ in the Embassy Theater in Fort Wayne. So uh, wouldn't you know, the Hamilton game goes to one overtime. It goes tied one to one. It goes to a second overtime. It goes to a third overtime. And I can remember I'm working this on radio alone, no color commentator. And so I, I've got an assistant PR gal who is running out now trying to find me some people to interview during the intermissions. I can remember counting down heading into the third intermission. And uh, as much for the engineer back in the station as the folks listening, I said, well, it looks like we're set for more hockey. Three, two, one, the period's over. John, back at the station, you play commercials till I get back. (laughs) Because the bathroom was way down the hall, down the set of stairs, and one little tiny bathroom in this one corner of the arena in Hamilton. So we lost the game two to one in the fourth overtime. The game ended at about a quarter to one in the morning in Hamilton, Ontario. I break down the equipment and I got as far as uh, I didn't quite get to Detroit, got into a shebag hotel at about uh, a quarter to three in the morning and slept until about eight and then made the drive into Fort Wayne, played the concert, drove to Indy. Stayed all night with friends there and then flew back into Houston on Monday. I made the uh, the the radio TV sports columnists 
<laughs> column in the Houston paper the next day uh, uh, announcing the trials and travails of Ken Double, the championship Calder Cup uh, announcer, also trying to squeeze in organ concerts <laughs> on the side. Who were some of your biggest influences? You mentioned Jack Brickhouse earlier and how he could uh, really promote a game. Who were some of your biggest influences as a broadcaster? Brickhouse, absolutely far and away number one. He certainly was not uh, the entertainer that Harry Carey was. But Brickhouse was the voice of my youth. And when you understand growing up in Chicago in the late 50s and early 60s, I started following Cubs baseball, I mean, seriously, when I was about five. And there was Brickhouse. And so the games were all on television, especially the home games. When school got out at a quarter to three, and I was two blocks from my grade school, I could dash home in the spring and in the late fall and catch the last two and a half innings of a Cubs game. And that's what you did. And there was Brickhouse. Now, when the Cubs season was over and you listened to Bears football on radio because you didn't have the NFL on TV like it was, like it is now, you listened to the Bears games on radio. There was Brickhouse doing the Bears. When the Bulls came into existence in 1966, it was Brickhouse doing the Bulls. At the time he was doing the Bears, he would sometimes do a Big Ten college football game of the week on Saturday. He did the sports highlights on the news on Channel 9 at night. He was on the air all the time. And when he eventually passed away, I still have the Tribune sports section. The voice of our youth is silenced. That was the headline. And he was the voice of our youth. And so what was he? He was enthusiastic. Uh, he had wonderful descriptive phrases. In fact, one that I carried over. If the shortstop went into the hole and reached for the ground ball, it was a boarding house reach. And I would use that phrase in terms of a poke check with the stick by a defenseman. And when a kid walked up to me one time in Atlanta and said, what's a boarding house reach? I better drop that expression (laughs) when they don't know what I'm talking about. It's not doing me any good. So Brickhouse, far and away, was the person who steered my interest in wanting to be an announcer. In hockey, he only did, I think, 11, maybe it was 13 seasons. Lloyd Pettit was the greatest hockey announcer that ever lived. And all you have to do is go on YouTube and find a few of the clips. First of all, he had the voice, he had the commanding voice of God. His speaking voice was spectacular. It was deep. It was rich. It was robust and it was clear. And if he was doing radio, it was absolutely crystal clear what was going on on the ice with the fewest words expended painting the greatest picture. One of the things I learned from him, and it took me a while to learn it uh, when I was first doing hockey, and that is you can't describe everything. It's not like basketball. You can follow the ball around the different players. The puck bounces around too crazily. And so I learned, one, you have to self-edit. Two, it's more important where the puck is for the listener than who's got it until it goes in the net. Then you better have the right name. But if you're painting the word picture, way more important to say the puck goes down to the near corner or it's along the near boards. I always use near right side, far left side, near and far paints a better word picture to me. You're sitting at home listening on radio. Your mind is sitting in a seat in the rink. 
And so you're sitting in my seat. So if it's the near right wing boards, that means we're moving to the right offensively. It, it helps paint the picture. I learned that from Lloyd Pettit. Uh, he was brilliantly exciting. He never missed the moment. And I stole his call. Most everybody says he shoots and scores. He shoots and scores a shot in the score. I learned a shot in the goal from Pettit. And I had the opportunity to interview him when he was the owner of the Milwaukee Admirals. And before we went on the air, I told him and I begged his forgiveness if it was insulting. But I said, it's the only thing I ever grew up on. And it's the only thing that naturally spills out of my mouth. And he patted me on the back and he said, whatever makes it comfortable, go right ahead. And he said, if you're kind enough to, you know, offer credit, uh, that's even better. Uh, he was the best hockey announcer ever. And I don't care who you want to bring up, Dan Kelly or any of them, they couldn't hold his microphone. Uh, and you talk about an influence. There was an influence. Kelly's a great announcer. Um, didn't know much about a guy like Mike Emmerich at the time, although oddly enough, my first job in radio was at WBAT Radio in Marion, Indiana. Mike Emmerich worked there seven years before I did. How odd that two hockey announcers came out of Marion, Indiana, uh, a center for, uh, you know, high school basketball championships in Indiana. Um, uh, Dan Kelly was great. I was never a great fan of Marv Albert, uh, only because you know, the East Coast nasal and everything else, but obviously a, a great announcer, but certainly not one of, uh, of great influence. For me, it was, it was Pettit and Brickhouse. And if I managed to make some kind of a marriage between the two of them in how I described the game, then uh, I guess I did all right. Now, the other influence had nothing to do with hockey. And that was a guy named Jerry Gross. My first year with the Indiana Pacers, the Pacers hired Jerry Gross. This was a guy who'd been a part of the ABC Game of the Week and later CBS Game of the Week network package. He did uh, San Diego conquistadors he worked in san diego for a while he actually worked as part of a crew with harry Carey and jack buck in st louis for a while um he was the greatest radio basketball play-by-play guy i ever heard and had the privilege of sitting next to my god could he paint word pictures and do it with great enthusiasm uh he was a great announcer he was a political nightmare but he was a great great basketball announcer and he really taught me about the nuances of selling the game, selling with the enthusiasm, selling the sponsor's product, weaving it in around the game. Um, he, he was a tremendous influence on me. And if I became a decent play-by-play announcer, uh, it was because I spent a year with Jerry Gross and learned from one of the best. Uh, Chick Hearn, the legendary L.A. Lakers announcer, called Jerry Gross the best basketball announcer he ever heard. That came from Chick Hearn. That'll tell you about Gross. I was the better announcer for having worked a year with Jerry Gross. What do you miss most about uh, broadcasting and working in hockey? (laughs) This is going to sound awful, but I'm going to say it anyway, because it's not going to make any difference. And it is the truth. Uh, I don't miss the bus rides. I don't miss, you know, all the engineering work. Yeah, obviously, you're going to miss the uh, just, you know, the thrill of the game. It was what I wanted to do. I got into the business to do play by play and I had the chance to do it for 17 years in hockey. But I miss it when I'm spinning the dial or picking up games here and there and I hear some really bad play by play. 
and there's a lot of really good play-by-play out there. So there's some terrific announcers. There are a lot of really good announcers that never got their shot only because, you know, those dominoes didn't fall in the right direction. There are a lot of bad announcers out there. Um, so I kind of miss it and I scratch my head and think, eh, that's, there's an audience that's not being very well served. Um, but the, you know, purely the, the camaraderie and the, the great fun. I mean, what a way to get a paycheck to be in the toy department of life and broadcasting a game that you love to broadcast. I mean, golly, if I had to do uh, not having grown up with soccer, if I had been told you're going to learn everything you can learn about soccer and they'll go do soccer, uh, that would have been, uh, that would have been a struggle, but to be able to do hockey. Um, so what do I miss the most? Uh, probably that opening. Hi, everybody. We're live from wherever we might be getting into the broadcast. I'll tell you what, and this is true. And some people don't understand this. Uh, radio was much more fun to do than television. Television, you are tied to the camera and everything is based around what the camera did. And, and the longer I was in television, the longer it became the domain of the producer and the director, not the play by play announcer. And I mean, then, then I realized this isn't anywhere near as much fun as when you are the eyes and the ears of your listeners when you're doing radio. Radio was so much more fun than television. Television gave you great exposure, but radio was a lot more fun. At radio, you are painting the picture instead of providing the captions for the pictures in a lot of ways. Well, and, you know, it's the color commentator's medium because you have the opportunity to explain what you see as opposed to describing. And, uh, you know, I was fortunate enough to work with some good people. So I had Darren Pang off and on in uh, Indy, and uh, he was great. We would pick up some different players from time to time. Uh, uh, I almost got our friend Mike McLean involved for a while. But uh, as as knowledgeable as Mike was, Mike wasn't quite as presentable on air. Mike McLean, who was my scorekeeper and gopher and assistant, made my life a lot easier uh, in Indy uh, for a long time. But in Houston, I worked with a goaltender named Troy Gamble. This was one of the great characters in all of hockey. And he was great on the air and he was great fun and he could tease himself. He could tell stories on himself and laugh at himself. Those were some of the funniest moments of my life uh, in terms of, uh, Troy Gamble, and yet uh, he was another one. He was just a natural at it, and he turned that gift of gab and his being the life of the party into a vice president's position with a major oil company that that's an oil support, oil refinery and, and uh, uh, support company. Uh, and Jiminy Christmas, I don't know how many millions he might be sitting on, but he's been spectacularly successful post hockey. But boy, was he fun to work with. Five years with the gambler was uh, was awesome. And if I'd have had the opportunity to get to the NHL, I would have loved to have dragged the gambler along with me. We'd had a lot of fun doing NHL games, <laughs> that's for sure. You've had the great fortune to spend a number of years broadcasting. You've also had a parallel career as a theater organist and uh, performing and also helping preserve the discipline and the craft of the theater organ. Just describe what 
you do with the American Theater Organ Society and the joy you get out of playing those large organs. I know those of us who are a little bit older in Indianapolis can remember the mighty Wurlitzer at the Paramount Pizza Palace, which I know you played at a time or two. And what is it about playing the organ that brings you so much joy? Uh, You know, it's funny. And, and, you know, the question comes in, well, uh, wait a minute, Uh, you know, were you an organist or a broadcaster? Did you get a degree in music? I said, no, I got a degree in radio and television. I, um, clearly I was a ham when I was a kid, uh, didn't mind the spotlight, bit of a show off, um, at a time in the early sixties when electronic organs were all over the place, largely because of the old Lawrence Welk show and other things, the kids were moving away from either piano or accordion and started taking organ lessons. And I started and I was about to quit because I had transferred to Maine East high school in suburban Chicago and they had a radio station. And I was going to start broadcasting football, basketball, and baseball on this high school radio station. And um, a teacher at that school in an elective class that I chose to take took us on a field trip. And I played the first theater organ I ever played. And I thought, boy, this is kind of different. And then he took us to the Oriental Theater in downtown Chicago, which still had its Wurlitzer. And I heard a master and... With a full house, there were 3,500 people in the Oriental to hear the Wurlitzer. This was a different time. This is 1967. And uh, that was the wow moment. I said, oh, my God, this is why I want to take lessons. This is why uh, I want to do this. And I steered uh, lessons in that direction for a few more years, including the last year of my lessons uh, in, uh, uh, in my last year of high school. Actually, uh, I was in the midst of transferring colleges. Anyway, I worked with Al Melgard, who played the mighty stadium organ at the Chicago Stadium for the Blackhawks and the Bulls. And uh, mind you, I took my lessons at a studio in Oak Park, the western suburbs. I never got to play the stadium organ while I was taking lessons. Um, And so uh, it developed uh, as I went to college in Indianapolis. There was an old place called the Rivoli Theater. The building is still barely standing, and it had a wonderful pipe organ, and it was one of the deciding factors that sent me to Butler University. One, a small university. Students did all the on-air work, and so I was going to get to do play-by-play. And then, oh, by the way, there was this theater organ at this theater, and I might be able to get to play that too. So uh, I continued with that. As a senior at college, Market Square Arena opened, and I got the gig to play the organ for the Pacers and basketball and the racers hockey games. And so I kept playing. There was a reason to keep playing. I had a great interest in playing. And in my second broadcast job, I left Marion for Lafayette, Indiana. I did three years of television with a small station in Lafayette. And at the time got involved with the Mars Theater, a 1921 vaudeville house. And the city took it on, saved the theater. We started working to further save the theater and a fellow up there and I said, you know, it used to have a pipe organ. Let's get one. And we did. And that became a platform. That theater became a platform for me to launch my concert career. I had played at the Paramount uh, Music Palace and had done, you know, some things, but I really hadn't done any concert work. 
Uh, I did one concert uh, at that embassy theater in Fort Wayne in 1978, long before I ever was ready to play a concert. Thank God that was the only one. And it was the only one until 1982 when we premiered the organ at that Mars Theater, now the Long Center for the Performing Arts. And it had not been for COVID, I would be playing my 39th annual June concert at the Long Center this coming June. Right now it's delayed maybe till October. So that started a career that uh, fueled that interest. And uh, I started then to get some recognition. Indianapolis has a very active group of theater organ enthusiasts. We have the Little Headback Theater on the near north side. Uh, the Paramount Music Palace, of course, really fueled it. But then Warren Central High School, the Warren Performing Arts Center, has the pipe organ that used to be at the Indiana Theater downtown. And then uh, the uh, Manual Arts High School, it has a Wurlitzer organ that our group installed. Uh, they got involved with uh, helping to restore the Anderson Paramount Theater's organ. We then put the organ in up in Lafayette. And so all of a sudden, all of this theater organ activity grew up in, uh, in and around Indiana. And so they had conventions. I had the chance to MC conventions and play concerts at conventions. And that introduced me to theater organ groups all over the country. At the time that I knew my career uh, was winding down, uh, I'm in my, I think, eighth season in Houston. And um, the NHL was not going to happen. I was going to become 55 years old, and they were not going to hire a 55-year-old rookie play-by-play announcer. I knew it, and that last year that I was in Houston, I was kind of sleepwalking through the games. I was good enough. I knew what I could do to cheat to get through it, and um, by almost mutual uh, agreement, it was time for me to do something else. At that very time, the American Theater Organ Society, a nationwide, actually worldwide footprint of theater organ enthusiasts, uh, was looking to make a change in its direction. I became the president of the nonprofit. A year later, they created a paid position for fundraising, marketing, promotion, uh, reorganization, and everything else. And so for 10 years, I did that and played concerts. And uh, I did that up until 2017. Today, if we weren't having the virus, I would be the organist at the Atlanta Fox Theater, which is right across the street from where I live. One of the greatest pipe organs ever created, and they play it about 120 times a year. I do my concerts. I'm president of the local chapter of the ATOS, the Atlanta chapter, um, a local nonprofit group. And I'm also paid as a consultant on a major project for the Fox, and I'm paid as a consultant for uh, fundraising for the biggest pipe organ ever built, and it's in Boardwalk Hall in Atlantic City. And it is a monster, uh, 15 times bigger than the one that was at the Paramount Music Palace. And um, they're trying to restore it pipe by pipe. And uh, so I've been doing that kind of work for low these years after I got out of broadcasting. How much do you enjoy helping preserve these great pipe organs and helping preserve the art that is the theater organ? It is a distinctive instrument. There's nothing like it. And what I've found is we might not generate new enthusiasts that would join our organization. We might not generate a lot of people who would buy for $20 a ticket to hear a concert on a theater organ. But I know this. Every time we present a theater organ well, the public enjoys it. 
it's a wonderful, marvelous instrument. And so um, every time I have an opportunity to play the theater organ in concert, it's absolute fabulous joy. Some of the instruments are better than others. Uh, most of the instruments are in much better condition today than they were 35 and 40 years ago when I was starting to play these things. Uh, the audiences are a little older. The audiences are dwindling. But, for example, I substituted at a similar pizza parlor out in Mesa, Arizona. And you have multiple generations, four generations coming. Great-grandma and grandpa in their 80s. Grandma and grandpa in their 60s, mom and dad in their 40s or 30s, and the little ones from, you know, 21 down to three. And they love it. They love the music of the Mighty Warlitzer at that restaurant. And it's the same here at the Fox. I'll play for 30 minutes of music leading into a Broadway show's performance. And people come early to get that 30-minute concert on what they affectionately call Mighty Mo, the big molar pipe organ. It's an absolute thrill. And so every time I play at the Fox, I close with Georgia on my mind, which is kind of the adopted state song of the state of Georgia. And thunderous applause every time that console sinks into the orchestra pit when my little 30 minutes over. It's uh, wonderfully gratifying. It's great fun. Occasionally, I get to make music for a silent film, which was what the theater organ was developed in the 1920s to do. And that's great fun. And um, uh, it's it's just wonderfully satisfying. And I'm in the midst of an interesting project. Lucas Theater in Savannah, Georgia, 1921 movie theater, has been restored by the Savannah College of Art and Design that actually owns and operates the building. It took a long time. But our chapter group in Atlanta was given that original Wurlitzer. It was taken out in the 60s by a dentist, Doc Ed Simmons. He died. He never got the organ installed in his music room. His wife gave it to the chapter. It took 20 years to finally work out the logistics in Savannah. And just last month, our Atlanta chapter signed a contract with Savannah College of Art and Design, SCAD, and they now bought that pipe organ from us for a dollar, the original organ from that theater. They then signed a contract with a pipe organ company. It's going to be restored, refurbished, and reinstalled in its original home. This is the reason the American Theater Organ Society exists, to save these instruments, to find them a home and get them to play again. This is one of the great success stories uh, of uh, the last few years uh, for the organization overall. It's, uh, it's, it's thrilling, and the, and the satisfaction to have been a part of that and let me give credit to an interesting guy named Stratton Leopold, who's a bigwig in Savannah. Stratton is the executive vice vice president of pictures for Paramount Pictures. <laughs> this is a big guy. And uh, he, he calls up one day. I'm looking for an organ for a theater in Savannah. We've been struggling to make this happen. I said, there must be another theater in Savannah that wants an organ. No, 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 no. This is for the... Uh, Lucas Theater. And even with Stratton's key involvement, it took five years to get it done, but we finally got it done. The organ's going in, and uh, it's it's the culmination of a lot of work and a culmination of the passion that we have for saving these instruments. Yeah. And the fact that there are so many in Indy and so many opportunities for people to, uh, to hear the theater organ there, uh, that's the Central Indiana Chapter of ATOS, C-I-C-A-T-O-S, and it's got more members than any chapter in the world. 
There are over 200 members of the theater organ loving society in uh, the central Indiana area. And that's hats off to good friends back home. That's fantastic. As our time uh, winds down, is there anything else you'd like to share with our fans and listeners back uh, here in Indy? Uh, Two things. First, I, I can't help it because the greatest experience in my life musically happened at this mighty stadium organ at the Chicago stadium. I substituted for Nancy Faust, the famous organist who did the White Sox and played at the stadium for a few years. Uh, it was an exhibition game in September. She made more money to play at the Sox. She needed a sub and called me. Um, I got to play that monster pipe organ, and it had just gone through a major refurbishment. And it was unbelievable. And the game was fun. But it was a Sunday night exhibition game in September. I had the organ in the building to myself on a Monday afternoon for five hours, and it was absolutely pure heaven. Secondly, I had 17 years of hockey, uh, seven or eight of which were spent in Indianapolis, a city that I still love. Lafayette, Indiana is still my musical home. That's where my career uh, really took off. And uh, I have great affection for Indianapolis. and. I found out that I was a pretty good hockey announcer because I spent a lot of time in Indianapolis broadcasting the Indianapolis ice games, including a championship. And so uh, to have an opportunity to chat about that with you, Andrew, has been uh, been a thrill. The thrill was all mine to chat with Ken Double on this edition of the Under the Hood podcast with the Indy Fuel. Ken was one of the outstanding broadcasters in a long line of excellent ones we have had. Started out with the ice in 1989, had two seasons in Atlanta in addition to his eight in Indy, and then seven more with the Houston Arrows in the International and American Hockey Leagues. One thing you could pull out of that conversation was Ken's passion for hockey, but also his passion for music and getting the opportunity to marry those two by playing the legendary Barton organ at the Chicago Stadium. Really the great pipe organ of all of American professional sports and its sound for anybody who remembers it is unreplicated and really fascinating. And so a thrill for him to get the opportunity to play that at a Blackhawks game and continue to play such instruments. And as he mentioned for 39 years, he has played a variety show in Lafayette at the long center for the performing arts that has been postponed from May to a tentative date in the fall. If you would like information about that, you can go to longpac.org. And as that date gets firmed up, it will be posted there. You can check that out if you're interested in seeing Ken play his variety show that he does each year in Lafayette. On a personal note, this was a fun conversation for me because I consider myself very fortunate to be in the seat calling the games for the Indy Fuel, my hometown hockey team, and following in a long line of great broadcasters we have had. And of those great broadcasters, Ken Double is probably as big of an influence on my broadcast and my broadcast style as any. And I borrow heavily from him, especially when I instruct you before each period to picture the rink in your mind's eye. That is a phrase Ken coined, and I borrow from him because it really describes what we're trying to do. Paint the picture for you and help you picture what's happening on the ice as you listen to our broadcast each and every night. And I thank you 
from the bottom of my heart for joining us for every broadcast we do. And I want to thank Ken Double for joining us on this edition of the Under the Hood podcast. We've got more fun podcasts coming up as we'll take a look back at 1990, at 2000, as well as back at previous editions of the Indie Fuel. We'll have some fun guests as well. Looking forward to the 2020-21 season of Indie Fuel Hockey. Thanks for joining us for this edition of Under the Hood with the Indie Fuel. I am the broadcast voice of the Fuel, Andrew Smith. Stay safe, stay healthy. When hockey resumes in the fall, we'll see you at the rink. Thanks for going Under the Hood with the Indie Fuel. For more, keep visiting IndieFuelHockey.com.